You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 7, given in Basel on the 17th of September, 1910. Most of the people present will know that apart from repeating the performance of the drama titled The Children of Lucifer, From the previous year, we endeavored in Munich to perform a Rosicrucian mystery, which tried to set out in a variety of ways the things connected with our movement. This Rosicrucian mystery is, on the one hand, meant to be a kind of sample of how all the things which drive anthroposophical life can flow into art. But on the other hand, we should not forget either that this Rosicrucian mystery contains many of our spiritual scientific teachings in such a way as might only be discovered in the course of several years. And specifically it should not be misunderstood that if people made a reasonable effort to read the things which it contains, not between the lines, they are there in the words, even if in a spiritual way. If people made the effort to understand the Rosicrucian mystery in such a way that these things were sought in the coming years, then it would not be necessary for me to give any lectures for many years ahead. Many things would be found in it which I otherwise set out in lectures on any given subject. But it is more practical for us to seek these things together than if we do it individually. It is good in a certain sense that what lives in spiritual science is also available in such a form. So, following on from the Rosicrucian mystery, I want to speak today about certain particular features of human self-knowledge. But for that, it is necessary that we remind ourselves, in a characterizing way, how the individuality works in the body of Johannes Tomasius in the Rosicrucian mystery. Hence, I would like this lecture, which will deal with self-knowledge, to start with a recitation of those sections from the Rosicrucian mystery which refer to the self-knowledge of Johannes. Scene 2. Landscape, Rocks and Springs The entire scene is to be thought of as taking place in the soul of Johannes Tomasius. What follows is the content of his meditation. Later, Maria. There sounds from the springs and rocks, Know thou thyself, O man, Johannes. Tis thus I hear them, now these many years, these words of weighty import all around. I hear them in the wind and in the wave. Out from earth's depths do they resound to me. And as a tiny acorn's mystery confines the structure of a mighty oak, so in the kernel of these words there lies all elemental nature. All I grasp of soul, of spirit, time, eternity. 
It seems mine own peculiarities and all the world besides live in these words. Know thou thyself, O man, know thou thyself. From the rocks and springs resounds, Know thou thyself, O man. And now I feel mine inmost being terrified to life. Without the gloom of night doth weave me round, and deep within my soul thick darkness yawns, and sounding from this universal gloom and up from out the darkness of my soul these words ring forth, Know thou thyself, O man. From the rocks and springs resounds, Know thou thyself, O man. It robs me of my very self, I change each hour of day and am transformed by night. The earth I follow on its cosmic course. I seem to rumble in the thunder's peal and flash adown the lightning's fierce forked tongue. I am. Alas, already do I feel mine own existence snatched away from me. I see what was my former carnal shape as some strange being, quite outside myself, and infinitely far away from me. But now another body hovers near, and through its mouth I am compelled to speak. Ah, bitter sorrow hath he brought to me, so utterly I trusted him of old. He left me lonely with my sorrow's pain. He robbed me of the very warmth of life and thrust me deep beneath the chill, cold ground. Poor soul, tis she I left, and leaving her, it was in truth mine own self that I left, and I must suffer all her pain and woe. For knowledge hath endowed me with the power myself into another self to fuse. Ah, me, ye quench again by your own power the light of inner knowledge ye have brought, ye cruel words. Know thou thyself, O man. From the springs and rocks resounds, Know thou thyself, O man. Ye lead me back again within the sphere of mine own being's former fantasies. Yet in what shape know I myself again? My human form is lost and gone from me. Like some fierce dragon do I see myself, begotten out of primal lust and greed. And clearly do I see how, up till now, some dim, deluding veil of phantom forms hath hid from me mine own monstrosity. Mine own self's fierceness must devour my self and through my veins run like consuming fire those words that once with elemental force revealed the core of suns and earths to me. They throb within my pulse, beat in mine heart, and even in mine inmost thoughts I feel strange worlds e'en now blaze forth like passions fierce. They are the fruitage of these very words, Know thou thyself, O man, know thou thyself. From the springs and rocks resounds, Know thou thyself, O man. There, 
From that dark abyss, what creature glares? I feel the chains that hold me chained to thee. So fast was not Prometheus riveted upon the naked rocks of Caucasus. I am riveted and forged to thee who art thou, fearful, execrable shape. From the springs and rocks resounds, know thou thyself, O man. O yea, I know thee, for thou art myself. Knowledge doth chain to thee, pernicious beast. Enter Maria, unannounced by Johannes. Chain mine own self, pernicious beast, to thee. I willed to flee from thee, but I was blind, blinded by glamour of the worlds, whereto my folly fled to free me from myself. And now once more, within my sightless soul, blind through these words, know thou thyself, O man. From the springs and rocks resounds, know thou thyself, O man. Johannes, as though coming to himself, sees Maria, the meditation passes to the plane of inner reality. Thou here, my friend? Maria. I sought thee, friend, although I know full well how comforting to thee is solitude. When many varying thoughts of many men have flooded o'er thy soul, I also know I cannot by my presence help my friend in this dark hour of strife. Yet yearnings vague drive me in this same moment unto thee. When Benedictus's words, instead of light, such grievous sorrow drew from thy soul's depths. Johannes How comforting to me is solitude! Yea, I have sought to find myself therein. So often when to labyrinths of thought the joys and griefs of men had driven me. But now, O oh friend, that too is past and gone. What Benedictus's words at first aroused within my soul, and all that I lived through in listening to the speeches of those men, seems but indeed a little thing. When I compare therewith the storm that solitude with sullen brooding hath brought forth in me, ah, me, when I recall this solitude, it hounded me into the voids of space and tore me from my very self in twain within that soul to whom I brought such grief. I rose as though I were that other self, and there I had to suffer all the pain of which I was myself the primal cause. Ah, cruel, somber, fearful solitude! Thou givest me back unto myself indeed, yet but to terrify me with the sight of mine own nature's fathomless abyss. Man's final refuge hath been lost to me. I have been robbed of solitude. Maria I must repeat what I have said before. Alone can Benedictus succor thee. Only from him may we obtain support and that firm basis which we both do lack. For know thou this, I also can no more endure the riddle of my life, unless his gentle guidance solveth it for me. Full often have I kept before mine eyes this truth sublime, that o'er 
all life doth float appearance and deception if we grasp life's surface only in our moods of thought. And o'er and o'er again it spake to me, Thou must take knowledge how illusion's veil weaves all around thee, and however oft it may appear to thee as truth, beware. For evil fruitage may in truth arise if thou shouldst try within another soul to wake the light that lives within thyself. Yet in the best part of my soul I know that even this oppressive weight of care, which hath o'erwhelmed thy soul, dear friend of mine, as thou didst tread with me the path of life, is part and parcel of the thorny way that leads unto the light of truth itself. Thou must live through each horror and alarm that can spring forth from vain imagining before the truth in essence stands revealed. Thus speaks thy star, and by that same star's speech it doth appear to me that we shall walk one day united on the spirit paths, and yet whene'er I seek to tread these paths, black night doth spread a curtain on my sight. And many things I am compelled to see, springing as fruitage from my character, intensify the darkness of that night. We too must seek clear vision in that light, which though it vanish for a while from sight, can never be extinguished in the soul. Johannes, but then, Maria, dost thou realize, through what my soul hath fought its way but now? A grievous destiny is thine, dear friend, full well I know. And yet how far remote from thy pure nature is the avenging force that hath so wholly shattered mine own soul. Thou canst ascend the clearest heights of truth and scan with steadfast gaze life's tangled path. And whether in the darkness or the light thou wilt retain thine own identity. But me, each moment may deprive of self. Deep down I had to dive within the hearts of those who late revealed themselves in speech. I followed one to cloistered solitude, and in another soul I listened to Felicia's fairy lore. I was each one. Only unto myself I seemed as dead. For I must fain believe that primal life did spring from very nothingness itself if it were right to entertain the hope that out of that dread nothingness in me a human being ever could arise. For I am driven from fear into the dark, and from the darkness back again to fear, by wisdom stored within these living words. Know thou thyself, O man, know thou thyself. From the springs and rocks the words resound, Know thou thyself, O man. Curtain. Scene 9, same region as in scene 2, Johannes, later Maria. From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. Johannes. O man, feel thou thyself. For three long years I have sought strength of soul with courage winged, which doth give truth unto these words whereby a man may free himself to conquer first, then conquering himself may freedom find. Through these same words, O man, feel thou thyself. From rocks and springs resounds, 
O man, feel thou thyself. I note their presence in mine inmost soul. Their whispered breathing thrills my spirit ear. And hid within themselves they bear the hope that they will grow and lead man's spirit up out of his narrow self to worldwide space, e'en as a giant oak mysteriously builds his proud body from an acorn small. Spirit can cause to live in its own self all weaving forms of water and of air and all that doth make hard the solid earth. Man too can grasp whate'er hath tain firm hold of being in the elements, in souls, in time, in spirits and eternity. The whole world's essence lies in one soul's core. When such power in the spirit roots itself, which can give truth unto these self-same words, O man, experience and feel thyself. From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. I feel them sounding in my very soul, rousing themselves to grant me strength and power. The light doth live in me, the brightness speaks around me, so light germinates in me. The brightness of all worlds creates in me. O man, experience and feel thyself. From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. I find myself secure on every side, where'er these words of power do follow me. They will give light and sense life's darkened ways. They will sustain me on the spirit heights. Soul substance will they pour into my heart through all the eons of eternity. I feel the essence of the worlds in me, and I must find myself in all the worlds. I gaze upon the nature of my soul, which mine own power hath vivified. I rest within myself. I look on rocks and springs. They speak the native language of my soul. I find myself again within that soul, into whose life I brought such bitter grief, and out of her I call unto myself. Thou must find me again and ease my pain. The spirit light will give to me the strength to live this other self in mine own self. O hopeful words, ye stream forth strength to me from all the worlds. O man, feel thou thyself. From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. Ye make me feel my feebleness, and yet ye place me near the highest aims of God's. And blissfully I feel creative power from these high aims in my weak earthly form, and out of mine own self shall stand revealed those powers whereof the germ lies hid in me. And I will give myself unto the world by living out mine own essential life. Yea, all the might of these words will I feel, which sound within me softly at the first. They shall become for me a quickening fire in my soul powers and on my spirit paths. I feel how now my very thought doth pierce to deep concealed foundations of the world, and how it streams through me with radiant light. E'en thus doth work the fructifying power of these same words, O man, feel thou thyself. 
From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. From heights of light a being shines on me, and I feel wings to lift myself to him. I, too, will free myself, like all those souls who conquered self. From springs and rocks resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. That being do I see, whom I would fain be like in future times. The spirit in me shall grow free through thee, sublime example. I will follow thee. Enter Maria. The spirit beings who did take me up have woken now the vision of my soul, and as I gaze into the spirit worlds, I feel in mine own self the quickening power of these same words, O man, feel thou thyself. From springs and rocks resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. Thou here, my friend? Maria, my soul did urge me here. I saw thy star shining in fullest strength. Johannes, this strength can I experience in myself. Maria, so closely are we one, that thy soul's life allows its light to shine forth in my soul. Johannes, Maria, then thou also art aware of what has just revealed itself to me. Man's first conviction has just come to me, and I have gained the certainty of self. I feel that power to guide me everywhere lies in these words, O man, feel thou thyself. From rocks and springs resounds, O man, feel thou thyself. Curtain End of scene, Steiner again. In the two scenes, Know thou thyself, O man, and O man, feel thou thyself. We have before our soul two development stages in the unfolding of our soul. Now I would ask you not to find it peculiar in any way when I say that actually I have no objection to this Rosicrucian mystery being interpreted in the way that I have on occasion also interpreted other poetic works in our circles. Because in a certain sense we may say that what I have often said in connection with other poetic works, which I was permitted to interpret, can come before our soul in a living and direct way through this Rosicrucian mystery. I have never refrained from saying that as little as the plant, the flower, knows what the person looking at the flower finds in it, the flower nevertheless contains what that person finds in it. When I was having to interpret the work titled Faust, I explained that the poet, in writing it down, did not necessarily know all the things directly himself, did not experience them directly in the words which were then later found in it. I can assure you that at the time that I wrote the individual scenes, I was not aware of what I will now subsequently say in connection with this mystery, of which I do know what it contains. The scenes grew out of themselves, like the leaves of a plant. It is simply not possible to produce such a form by first having the idea and then implementing it in its outer form. It was always quite interesting for me when one scene after the other was created like this, and friends who got to know the individual scenes said it was strange that it always turned out differently from what one imagined. Thus, this mystery stands like an image of human evolution in the development of the individual human being. Let me emphasize, as far 
as the concrete feelings are concerned, it is impossible to wrap oneself in abstractions to represent anthroposophy, because every human soul is different and, basically, since it experiences its development itself, has to be different. In everything which is given as a general teaching, we can only receive guidelines. As a result, we can only provide the complete truth if we build on the individual soul, on a soul which represents its human individuality in all its uniqueness. So if someone were to look at Johannes Tomasius and try to convert what is said about him specifically into theories of human development, they would do something that is completely wrong. If they thought that they would experience precisely the same thing as Johannes Tomasius, they would be in error. Because the broad sweep of what Johannes Tomasius had to experience applies to every human being. But in order to experience it in its unique character, one has to be Johannes Tomasius. And each person is Johannes Tomasius in his or her own way. Thus everything is represented in a very individual way. But as a result, in building on the specific figure, everything that is the development of the human being in his or her soul is given in as truthful a way as possible. That is also why such a broad basis had to be created, why Tomasius is first shown on the physical plane, why reference is made to individual soul experiences, to those things which are of importance when, in a time which is not too distant, he left a being who was devoted to him in faithful love. That happens often enough, but this individual event has a different effect on the person who endeavors to undergo a development. It is a profound truth that the person who undergoes a development achieves self-knowledge not through introverted brooding, but through submersion in individual beings. Through self-knowledge we have to experience that we come from the cosmos. We can only submerse ourselves when we transform ourselves into another self. The first thing we are transformed into is what was once close to us in life. It is an example of the experience of our own self in another. When Johannes first, as he penetrates deeper into his self, submerses himself with this self-knowledge, in another being, in the being whom he caused bitter pain. So we see how Tomasius submerses himself in such self-knowledge. Theoretically, we say, if you want to understand the flower, you have to submerse yourself in the flower. But self-knowledge can best be achieved when we submerse ourselves in the events in which we ourselves were involved in a different way. We undergo external events for as long as we are in our own self. The thoughts we think from other beings becomes an abstraction with regard to true self-knowledge. For Tomasius, what other people have experienced initially becomes his own experience. There was one person, Capacius, who described his experiences. These experiences are such that we can recognize how they relate to life. But Tomasius takes something else from that. He listens. But his listening, this is characterized subsequently in scene 8, is of a different sort. It is as if for him 
the human being were not present at all with the ordinary self. Another deeper force reveals itself as if it were he himself who crawls into Capacius's soul and experiences what happens there. That is why it becomes of such infinite importance that he is alienated from himself there, that we tear ourselves away from ourselves and are realized in the other cannot be separated from self-knowledge. That is why it is so important with regard to Tomasius that he is forced to say, after having listened to the speeches, bracket, in the first scene, close bracket, quote, A mirrored picture t'was of fullest life that showed me to myself in clearest lines. This spirit revelation makes me feel that most of us protect and train one trait and one alone in all our character, which thus persuades itself it is the whole. I sought to unify these many traits in mine own self and boldly trod the path which here is shown to lead unto that goal, and it hath made of me a nothingness. Close quote, Steiner again. Why has it made a nothingness out of him? Because through self-knowledge he has immersed himself in other beings. Introspective brooding makes people proud, arrogant. Because we submerse ourselves in a foreign self, true self-knowledge initially leads to suffering. Johannes follows, in the first scene, the other people in such a way that he listens to Capacius and experiences the words of Felicia in this other soul. He follows Strader into the solitude of his monastery. Here we initially have abstraction. He has not yet reached the point to which he is now led, in the second scene, through pain. Self-knowledge deepens through meditation in the inner self. And what has been shown in the first scene shows the deepened self-knowledge in the second scene which presents the concrete arising from abstraction. The usual words we hear ringing out over centuries as the mark of the Delphic oracle obtain a new life for human beings, but initially a life of alienation from ourselves. As someone who has obtained knowledge of himself, Johannes is submersed in every outer being. He lives in the air and water, in rocks and springs, but not in himself. All the words which we can only make resound from outside are actually words of meditation. And as soon as the curtain rises, we have to imagine the words which resound much more loudly in any self-knowledge than can be presented on the stage. Then the person obtaining knowledge of himself is submersed in the various other beings. That is how he learns about the things into which he is submersed. And then the same experience, which he has already had previously, appears before his eyes in a terrible way. That is indeed a deep truth that such self-knowledge, when it takes the course as has just been characterized, leads us to look at ourselves in quite a different way from the way we did previously. It leads us to experience our I, capital, as a foreign being, as it were. The outer envelope is really the closest thing for human beings. People in our time will feel much more closely connected with it when they cut their finger 
than if they are hurt by a false judgment about a fellow human being. It is a great deal more painful for people today when they cut themselves in the finger than when they hear a false judgment. And yet the cut is only to their physical envelope. But that we feel this, that we experience our body as a tool, is only the result of self-knowledge. People can get close to experiencing their hand as a tool when they take hold of an object. But we learn to experience the same with this or the other part of the brain. Such an inner experience of the brain as an instrument occurs at a certain level of self-knowledge. At that stage, the individual things are localized. When we knock in a nail, we know that we do so with a tool. But we also know that we use this or the other part of the brain for that. Because these things become objectively alien to us, we learn to know our brain as something separated from us. Self-knowledge supports such objectivity with regard to our envelope, and then our envelope ultimately becomes as alien to us as an outer tool. We truly begin to live in the external world when we try to feel our bodily nature as something objective. Because human beings only experience their physical envelope, they have no clear understanding that there is a limit between the air outside and the air in their lungs. They nevertheless say that the air inside is the same as outside. If we take the substance of the air, then they are inside and outside. That is the same with everything, with the blood, with everything that is physical. But physically they cannot be inside or outside. That is simply maya. Precisely because the physical interior becomes an exterior, they continue truthfully into the rest of the world and the cosmos. The first scene recited today was meant to present the pain of the feeling of alienation from oneself, the pain of becoming alienated from ourselves because we find ourselves in everything that is external. The physical envelope of Johannes Tomasius is like a being that is external to him. But in return for experiencing his own body as being external, he sees coming toward him the other body, the body of the being he has left that approaches him and he has learned to speak with that being's own words. He says to it, his self has expanded to it. Quote, ah, bitter sorrow hath he brought to me. So utterly I trusted him of old. He left me lonely with my sorrow's pain. He robbed me of the very warmth of life and thrust me deep beneath the chill, cold ground. Close quote, Steiner again. But the reproach only enters the soul in a living way when the foreign pain with which we have linked our own self has to be expressed because our own self has submersed itself in another self. That is a deepening. Johannes is truly in that suffering because he has caused it. He feels as if he has flowed out into it and reawoken. What does he actually experience there? If we take everything together, we find that the ordinary, normal human being only experiences something similar in the state which we call Kamaloka. Human beings, to be initiated, have to experience in this world already what the normal person experiences in the spiritual world. They have to experience within the physical body what our Kamaloka experiences, 
which are otherwise experienced outside the physical body. That is why all characteristics, which we can incorporate as Kamaloka characteristics, exist as experiences of initiation. Just as Johannes is submersed in the soul to which he caused pain, so ordinary human beings must submerse themselves in the souls to whom they have brought pain. They have to feel pain in the same way that they would if someone slapped them back. The only difference in these things is that the initiate experiences them in the physical body, the other person after death. The person who experiences them here lives in quite a different way from Kamaloka. But what people experience in Kamaloka can be experienced in such a way that they have not yet truly obtained freedom, and that is a difficult task to become truly free. Human beings feel as if they are shackled to physical circumstances. It is one of the most important developmental experiences in our time. It was not yet like this in the Greco-Roman period. It has only become of particular importance now that human beings can experience how incredibly difficult it is to get away from oneself. That is why an important initiation experience is expressed in the words in which Johannes feels himself shackled to his own lower body, where his own being appears to him as a being to which he is shackled. Quote, I feel the chains that hold me chained to thee. So fast was not Prometheus riveted upon the naked rocks of Caucasus. I am riveted and forged to thee. Close quote, Steiner again. That is something which is connected with self-knowledge, the mystery of self-knowledge. We only have to understand it in the right way. The question as to this mystery could also be described in this way. Has the fact that we have become human beings on earth, that we have submersed ourselves in our earthly envelope, made us better human beings? Or would we have become better human beings if we could be in our interior alone, if we could simply throw off our envelope? Superficial people, when faced with spiritual life, could easily ask, why submerse ourselves in the earthly body at all? The simplest thing would be to stay up there, and then we would not have this whole miserable situation of having to submerse ourselves. Why have the wise powers of destiny submersed us? In terms of our feeling, little can be explained if we say that divine and spiritual forces have worked on this earthly body for millennia and millennia. Precisely because it is like that, we should make more of ourselves than we have the forces to do. Our inner forces are not enough. We cannot now already be as much as the gods have made if we only want to be what we are in our interior, if we are not corrected through our envelopes. Life presents itself as follows. Here on earth human beings are put in their bodily envelopes. These are prepared by beings through three worlds. Human beings are first meant to develop their interior. Between birth and death, they are something bad. In Devakan, they are better beings again, taken in by divine spiritual beings which infuse them with their own forces. Later in the Vulcan period, they will then be complete beings. Here on earth, they are beings who indulge in their pleasures. The heart, for example, is constructed so wisely 
that it can resist the onslaught which human beings direct toward it with their excesses, with coffee, for example, for decades. Then human beings trek through Kamaloka in the way they are today through their own forces. There they should learn to know what they are through their own forces, and that is truly nothing good. Human beings, if they were to describe themselves, could not give themselves the attribute of beauty. On the contrary, they would have to describe themselves as Johannes does in the second scene, quote, Yet in what shape know I myself again? My human form is lost and gone from me. Like some fierce dragon do I see myself, begotten out of primal lust and greed. And clearly do I see how up till now some dim, deluding veil of phantom forms had hid from me mine own monstrosity. Close quote. Steiner again. And inward things are expanded like elastic into our bodily envelopes and hide from us. We do indeed get to know ourselves as a kind of fierce dragon when we get to know initiation. And that is why these words are drawn from deepest feeling, these words of self-knowledge, not of introspection. Quote, oh, yea, I know thee, for thou art myself. Knowledge doth chain to thee, pernicious beast. Close quote. Steiner again. Because both are the same, once as object, the other as subject. Quote, I willed to flee from thee. Close quote. Steiner again. But such flight only leads human beings to themselves. And then we get into the company which appears, which we get into when we truly look at ourselves. Such company which we find within ourselves are our desires and passions. Those things which we did not notice earlier on. Because each time when we looked inside ourselves, our eyes were diverted to our surroundings. Because, in comparison to the things into which we wanted to look, the world is a wonderful place. There, in illusion, in the maya of life, we stop looking into ourselves. But when the people around us say all kinds of stupid things, and when we have had enough, then we escape into solitude. And that is very important for certain stages of development. At that point we can and should collect ourselves. That is a good means of self-knowledge. But there are nevertheless experiences in which we get into company, in which we can no longer be in solitude. When those beings in particular appear, within us or outside us, it doesn't matter, who do not leave us alone. Then that experience occurs, which we should have. It is simply the case that such solitude brings the worst company. Quote, Man's final refuge hath been lost to me. I have been robbed of solitude. Close quote. Steiner again. Those are real experiences. But do not let the intensity, the strength of these experiences in themselves be a challenge. Do not think when such experiences are presented with great intensity that we should suffer fear and anxiety. Do not think that this should help to prevent someone from submersing themselves in these waters themselves. We do not experience them immediately as strongly as Johannes does because he was meant to experience it like that for a certain purpose, in a certain sense even prematurely. 
regular self-development takes a different course. That is why what happens with Johannes in a tumultuous way must be understood as something individual, because he is an individuality which has suffered shipwreck. Everything can take place in a much more tumultuous way under these laws. He learns to know them in such a way that they profoundly throw him off balance. But one thing was meant to be awoken by describing it for Johannes in this way, namely the feeling that true self-knowledge has nothing to do with any kind of trivial words. The true self-knowledge has no other option than first to lead through pain and suffering. Things which previously served to refresh human beings acquire another face when they appear in the field of self-knowledge. We can beg for solitude, certainly, when we have also found self-knowledge. But at certain moments of self-knowledge, solitude can be the thing which we lose if we seek it in the way we knew previously, in moments when we flow out into the objective world where the solitary person suffers the greatest pain. We have to learn to experience such outpouring of ourselves into other beings in the correct way if we want to feel what has been put into a drama. A certain aesthetic feeling has been executed. Everything in it is spiritually realistic. Anyone who thinks realistically, a realist with true aesthetic feelings, feels a certain pain in an unrealistic depiction. Even things which at a certain level can give great satisfaction can be a source of pain at another level. That is dependent on the path of self-knowledge. A Shakespeare drama, for example, something which is a great achievement in the external world, can be a source of aesthetic satisfaction. But a certain moment can occur in development where we can no longer be satisfied by that, because we feel ourselves torn apart inside when we go from one scene to the next, because we can no longer see the necessity of one scene following on from the previous one. We can experience it as something artificial, that one scene is placed next to another one. Why artificial? Because there is nothing that ties the two scenes together other than the writer Shakespeare and the audience. The sequence of scenes contains an abstract principle of causality, not something intrinsic. That is the characteristic feature of Shakespeare's dramas, that nothing is indicated which interweaves and holds them together karmically. The Rosicrucian drama has become realistic, spiritually realistic. It makes great demands of Johannes Tomasius. He is on the scene without being actively involved in any important way. It is in his soul that everything takes place, and what is described there is the development of the soul, the real experience of what is experienced in the development of the soul. The soul of Johannes realistically spins the one scene out of the other. Here we can see that realistic and spiritual are not contradictory. Materialistic and spiritual things do not need to but can contradict one another, and realistic and spiritual things do not need to contradict one another either, and something spiritually realistic can be wholly admired by a materialist. Shakespeare's dramas can indeed be thought of as being realistic with regard to their aesthetic principle. 
But you can also understand that an art which goes hand in hand with spiritual science ultimately means that for someone who experiences their self in the cosmos, the whole cosmos becomes the being of their I, capital. Then we also cannot bear it when something confronts them in the cosmos which bears no relationship to the being of the I. Art will learn something in this respect which allows it to get to the I principle because Christ first of all brought us the I. This I will come to expression in a great variety of fields. But this concrete human element in the soul and in turn being distributed externally also reveals itself in another way. If at the time someone had asked which person is Atma, which is Buddhi, which Manas, it would be horrible art, terrible art, if the depiction had to be interpreted in this way. This character is the personification of Manas. There are theosophical bad habits which attempt to interpret everything in this sense. We would have to say about an artwork which can be interpreted in this way, poor work of art. Certainly with regard to Shakespeare's dramas, this would be fundamentally wrong and ridiculous. These things are the childhood diseases of theosophical development. It will overcome them eventually, but it is nevertheless necessary to draw attention to these things occasionally. It is not inconceivable that someone might attempt to discover the nine components of human nature in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And yet it is correct, in a certain way, that what is unified human nature is in turn distributed among various people. One person has a particular hue in their soul, another person a different one. In this way we can see people before us who represent different sides of human nature as a whole. But that has to be thought of realistically. It has to come out of the nature of the person. The way that people confront us in the world, that is how they represent the different sides of human nature. And we become a totality in developing from incarnation to incarnation. If the underlying relevant fact is to be represented, the whole life has to be spread out. Thus what, in a certain sense, is meant to represent Maria in the Rosicrucian mystery is spread out among the other figures which surround her as her companions, who together with her represent a single egohood. We can particularly see characteristics of the sentient soul in Philia, characteristics of the intellectual or mind soul in Astrid, characteristics of the consciousness soul in Luna. The names were given with this in mind. All names are such that they have been specifically given for the individual beings, not just in the words, but in the way that the words are set, specifically where the spiritual is to act in Devakan, in the seventh scene, the thing which is meant to characterize the three figures of Philia, Astrid and Luna, has been precisely gradated. The way in which the seventh scene starts is a better characterization of the sentient soul, intellectual soul, and consciousness soul than could otherwise be given in words. Here we can show people what the sentient soul, the intellectual soul, and the consciousness soul are. In art we can show the levels in the way that these three figures are depicted. In the human being they flow into one another. If they are separated, then they present themselves in the way that philia places herself in the cosmos 
Astrid places herself in the elements. Luna flows into the activity of the self and self-knowledge. And because they present themselves in this way, the Devakan scene contains everything which is alchemy in the true sense. It contains all of alchemy. We just gradually have to discover it. But it is not only given in the abstract content, but in the interweaving and nature of the words. That is why you should not just listen to what is said, and specifically not just to what the individual is saying, but to how the soul forces speak in relation to one another. The sentient soul inserts itself into the astral body. We are dealing with flowing astrality. The intellectual soul inserts itself into the etheric body. We are dealing with flowing etheric beings. We see how with inner firmness the consciousness soul pours itself into the physical body. Thus what works in a soul-like way as light in the soul is given in the words of philia. What works in an etherically objective way so that we are faced with true things that is given in Astrid. What gives inner firmness so that it is combined with the physical body that is given in Luna. That is what we have to fulfill. Let us listen to the soul forces in scene 7. Philia, sentient soul. I will myself imbue with clearest rays of light from cosmic spaces wide. I will breathe deep within sound substance that gives life from distant ether bounds. Dear sister, that thou mayst succeed in this thy work. Astrid, intellectual soul. Through all the streaming light I will weave darkness in to cloud its radiant beam. I will make dense and thick the living life of sound, that glowing it may sound and sounding it may glow, dear sister, that thou mayest direct the soul life's rays. Luna, consciousness soul. Soul substance will I warm, life's ether Harden, too, that they may thus condense and may thus feel themselves as living in themselves and powerful to create. Dear sister, that thou mayest prove wisdom's certainty to mankind's seeking soul. Close quote. See how in Philia we have, quote, das dir geliebte Schwester, close quote, that in Ostrid we have the darker, more solidified Quote, das du geliebte Schwester. Close quote. Das dir, das du. And now we have it interwoven in Luna with something that weighs even more heavily. Quote, der suchenden Menschenseele. Close quote. Here the U is so interwoven with the neighboring consonants that it becomes even more densely solidified. These are the things which can indeed be characterized. What matters is the how, in quotes. That is something we have to understand. If we compare the words which Philia speaks further on, quote, Ich will erbitten von welten Geistern, das ihres Wesens Licht, entzücke Seelensinn und ihre Worteklang beglücke Geistgehör, close quote with the quite different nature of the words that Astrid speaks. 
Quote, ich will die Liebesströme, die Welt erwarmend, zu Herzen leiten, dem Geweihten. Close quote. Then the inner weaving and nature of the devakonic cosmic element occurs precisely where these words are executed. We have to use these things, and that is why I mention them, to make clear for ourselves that when self-knowledge begins to immerse itself in the external weaving and nature of the world, the key thing is to give up all one-sidedness and to learn to feel how otherwise we can only experience in a Philistine way what exists at each point of existence. That is what makes us human beings into such rigid beings, that we are tied to the point in space and believe that we can express truths in words. But words are things which are less well able to express the truth because they are tied to the physical sound. We also have to feel the expression, if I can put it like that. That is why it is important that a significant process, like Johannes Tomasius's process of self-knowledge, can only be experienced properly once he starts courageously to gain and grasp self-knowledge. That is the next act after self-knowledge has devastated us, that we start to take into ourselves what we have learned in that we have understood the cosmos to be related to ourselves. Having recognized the nature of the beings, that we embolden ourselves to live what we have recognized. Because it is only half the matter that we submerse ourselves, like Johannes, into a being whom we have caused pain, whom we have thrust down into the cold earth because now we feel things differently. We take courage to compensate for the pain and submerse ourselves into this life and speak differently in our own being. That becomes what we initially see in the ninth scene, whereas in the second scene the being called out to Johannes, quote, Ah, bitter sorrow hath he brought to me, so utterly I trusted him of old. He left me lonely with my sorrow's pain. He robbed me of the very warmth of life, and thrust me deep beneath the chill, cold ground. Quote. The same being called out to him in the ninth scene, after Johannes had experienced himself in the place where all self-knowledge drives us. Quote, Thou must find me again and ease my pain. That is the other side, first the devastation, then the compensation of experience. The other being calls to him, quote, Thou must find me again. Close quote. Such elevation of the experience of the world, such filling oneself with the experience of the world, could not be represented in any other way. True self-knowledge as we surface in the cosmos could not be described if not in the words with which Johannes awakens. It naturally has to start in the second scene. Quote, "'Tis thus I hear them, how these many years, these words of weighty import all around." Close quote because after he has submersed himself in the ground of the earth, after he has united with the ground of the earth, the strength is created in the soul to let the words arise in this way. That is the key thing in the ninth scene. Quote, For three long years I have sought strength of soul, with courage winged, which does give truth unto these words, whereby a man may free himself to conquer first, then conquering himself, may freedom find. Close quote. 
Those are the words, quote, O man, feel thou thyself, close quote, in contrast to the words in the second scene, quote, Know thou thyself, O man, close quote. In this way, we always encounter the same scene again, whereas on the one occasion the scene leads downward, quote, It seems my own peculiarities and all the world besides live in these words. Know thou thyself, O man, know thou thyself, close quote. It is then reversed. It changes. The scene reflects the process in the soul. So you also heard the devastating words, quote, But then, Maria, dost thou realize through what my soul hath fought its way but now? Close quote. Quote again, Man's final refuge has been lost to me. I have been robbed of solitude. Close quote. Then the ninth scene shows how the being first acquires assurance and then security. That is the congruence. They have to be self-evident experiences and not constructs. In this way we are meant to feel how in a soul such as that of Johannes Tomasius, self-knowledge is refined into self-experience. We are also meant to feel how this experience of Johannes Tomasius is distributed across individual human beings and thus his own knowledge across all of the human beings in whom a part of his being comes to expression in the individual incarnations. At the end a whole company stands in the sun temple like a tableau, and all of them together are a single human being. The characteristics of a single human being are distributed across all of them. It is basically a single human being. A pedantic person might say, there are too many parts. It should be nine instead of twelve. But that is not how reality works. That is in harmony with the theories. It is more in harmony with the truth than if we had the individual components of the human being muster in the regular way. Let us now place ourselves in this sun temple. There are the individual human beings who have been placed in the way that they really belong together karmically. Our karma has placed them together in life. But if we now think of Johannes as being there, and there's a picture, and think of each individual character being mirrored in the soul of Johannes, and each human being as being the soul community of Johannes, what then has happened if we accept it as reality? Here karma has truly brought these human beings together as if in a node. Nothing is unintentional, purposeless, aimless. But what individual human beings have done not only reflects an individual event. Each one reflects a soul experience of Johannes Tomasius. Everything takes place twice, in the macrocosm and in the microcosm of Johannes's soul. That is his initiation. In the same way that Maria, for example, stands in relationship to him, so an important component of his soul stands in relationship to another component of his soul. These are absolute congruences, strictly executed. What is an external action is an internal developmental process when it takes place in Johannes. What endeavors to happen here is what the Hierophant expresses in scene 3, quote, Within our circle there is formed a knot of threads that karma spins, world fashioning. Close quote. It has been knotted. And this properly tied knot shows where everything leads. On the one hand, absolute reality, the way that karma spins, but not purposeless spinning. 
We have the knot as the initiation process in the soul of Johannes, and we have the whole thing in such a way that a human individuality still stands above all these human beings, the Hierophant who intervenes, who guides the threads. We only need to think of the Hierophant and his relationship with Maria. But this in particular can show us that this process is something which can illuminate self-knowledge here in Scene 3. Leaving the self in this way is no fun. It is a very real process, an abandonment of the human envelopes by inner strength. Then these human envelopes are left behind and become a battlefield for subordinate powers. Where Maria sends the beam of love down to the Hierophant, that cannot be represented in any other way than down there the body which is taken hold of by the power of the adversary and says the opposite of what takes place above, up there a beam of love radiates downward, while down below a curse arises. Those are the contrasting scenes. In Devakan, where Maria describes what she has really done, and in the third scene, where below the cursing of the demonic powers against the Hierophant takes place as the body is abandoned. There we have two scenes which complement one another. It would really be quite terrible if they first had to be constructed. Thus I have based today's lecture on one side of this mystery drama, and I hope that we can link some specific characteristics with that which underlie initiation. The circumstance that some things had to be sharply emphasized when real processes of initiation were represented should not make you despondent or faint-hearted with regard to striving for the spiritual world. The only purpose of the description of the dangers is to steel human beings against the powers. The dangers are there, the pain and suffering lie ahead of us. It would truly be a bad behavior if we merely wanted to move up into the higher worlds in a comfortable way. In reaching the spiritual worlds, we cannot enjoy the same comfort as we have when we roll along in modern trains or in the way modern material culture treats external life. What I have described here should not deprive us of our courage, but our courage should be strengthened precisely through acquainting ourselves in a certain way with the dangers of initiation. Just as in Johannes Tomasius, whose inclination made him unable to wield his brush, this is transformed into pain, but then pain into knowledge. So everything which causes suffering and pain will be transformed into knowledge. But we have to be serious in our search for this path, we can only do this if we attempt to make clear to ourselves that the spiritual scientific truths are not that simple. They are such deep truths about life that we can never finish trying to understand them in detail. The example in life in particular allows us to grasp the world and we can talk even more precisely about the developmental conditions if we present the development of Johannes as if we were presenting the development of a human being in general. The book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved?, sets out that development as it can take place in every human being. That is simply the possibility how it can be in reality. When we represent Johannes Tomasius, we describe a single human being, 
but that robs us of the possibility to describe the development in general. I hope you will take the opportunity, as far as possible, to say that I have basically still not properly told the truth. We have two extremes and have to find the gradation between both. I can only ever stimulate some thoughts. These then have to continue living in the hearts and souls. In the thoughts I put forward about the Gospel of Matthew, I said, Do not try to remember the wording, but when you have stepped out into the world, try to look into your heart and soul, what the words have turned into there. Try to read not just the cycles, but also to read seriously in your soul. But for that, something first has to be given from outside. Something has to have entered first. Anything else would be self-deception of the soul. Understand how to read that in the soul, and you will see that what has sounded from outside will sound inwardly in many different ways. That would then be the correct anthroposophical endeavor, if every time what had been spoken was understood in as many different ways as there are listeners. Never can the person who wishes to speak about spiritual science attempt to be understood in just a single way. He wishes to be understood in so many ways as there are souls present. Anthroposophy can cope with that, but one thing is necessary. I do not say this to say something negligible. One thing is necessary, namely that every single way of understanding is correct and true. It can be individual, but it must be true. Sometimes the individual part of apprehension consists of the opposite, being understood of what has been said. So when we speak about self-knowledge, we also have to be clear that it is more useful to speak in such a way that we seek the errors in us and the truth outside us. We do not say, seek the truth within yourself. The truth is indeed found outside. We find that it is poured out into the world. We have to become free of ourselves through self-knowledge, have to pass through such stages of the soul. Solitude can be a very bad companion. But we can also feel the whole extent of our weakness if we reflect the feeling in our soul of the magnitude of the cosmos out of which we have been born. But then we take courage, become bold enough to experience what we have learned to know then we will find that out of the loss of the final assurance in our life, there does indeed grow the first and last assurance of our life, the assurance which in rediscovering ourselves in the cosmos allows us to overcome and find ourselves anew. Quote, o human being, experience the world in yourself. Then, striding beyond yourself, you will more than ever have found yourself in your true self. If we feel these words as experiences, then they become stages of development for us. The end of lecture seven.